Welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast, hosted by Dave Jenkins. The Equipping You in Grace podcast is a podcast about helping Christians develop a biblical worldview in a conversational tone about issues inside and outside the church. Now, for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. All right, well, welcome back to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. And today we're going to continue our study of the doctrine of Scripture, considering today uh, infallibility. You know, for the sake of defending the faith and uh, teaching God's people the Word of God, uh, Christian theologians and apologists, that is, defenders of the faith, have developed uh, specialized vocabulary. Terms such as the Trinity, hypostatic union, eschatology, aseity, many other terms have been employed uh, to help the people of God grow in their knowledge of God and the Word of God. And now with respect to the doctrine of Scripture, two words are often used to make assertions about uh, the veracity of the Bible. That is, inerrancy and infallibility. Now, inerrancy means that the Bible is without error. The Bible doesn't endorse anything that's untrue. When it speaks about history, it tells us real history. It it may report on what a person said, like if they told a lie, but it doesn't endorse the lie. It's giving an accurate report of what the liar said. And where it speaks to science, it doesn't contradict God's revelation in the natural world. The Bible is entirely truthful. It has no errors at all in the original manuscripts that the prophets and the apostles actually wrote. Now, today we don't possess the actual manuscripts, but through the process of textual criticism, we recover the original wording of the manuscripts with a high degree of certainty. And it's important to note that inerrancy is not a property unique to Scripture. Human beings regularly make error-free statements. Students score 100% on exams. People accurately state their names to others, and so on and so forth. What sets Scripture apart from everything else is infallibility. That is, the Scripture is without the possibility of error. Infallibility has to do with possibilities, and it means that the Word of God is incapable of erring. No, for example, Joe might score, or before Joe might score 100% on uh, his math test, it was possible that he might miss one of the answers. When the Lord inspired the authors of Scripture, he worked so as to make it impossible for them to affirm error in the completed product. And we can have inerrancy without infallibility, but we cannot have infallibility without inerrancy. Infallibility necessarily results in the text being free from error. Without infallibility, the production of an inerrant text is accidental. Uh, It could have otherwise had errors. And now we affirm the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture because we know the character of God. Titus 1-2 very clearly states that God never lies. And if God never lies, his word never lies either. We can trust the word of God, to be free from all error. And now some people have recently used the term infallibility, even though they believe the Bible does contain errors. And so we need to be on guard against the use of the word. Historically, Christians have said that scripture is infallible because they have believed that God's word is incapable of erring and thus contains no errors. And because the Bible gives us ample warrant to believe this, we know we can stake our very lives on the Word of God. In fact, the Protestant Reformers worked for many things, but perhaps the goal that they worked the hardest to achieve was to restore the church's confidence in the Word of God. And so stressing the unique inspiration and authority of the Bible, the Reformers sought to bring the Western church in submission to the Word of God after many years of the church following those who claimed too much authority for themselves. 
In fact, they recognize that Christians are perennially tempted to look for God's power in things such as techniques and relics in the state, in individual personalities and so on and so forth, or even in management techniques or, I mean, on and on it goes. But respect to ministry, God has invested his power in one place and that is in his word. Isaiah 55, 10 through 11 emphasizes the power that the Lord has vested in his revelation in the word of God. You see, the word that goes forth from the mouth of our creator, which is scripture, as scripture is God-breathed, as we've considered in 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, it cannot fail to accomplish the Lord's purpose for it. And when God sends forth his word to bring about a person's salvation, that, that person will not finally resist his revelation. It will convert the man, the woman, the child that God intends to save. And at the same time, when the Lord sends forth his word to someone who is, he has not chosen for salvation, that revelation will result in, in the hardened person's heart hardening even further. God's word is powerful. It's effective to reveal the way of salvation to Christ's sheep and to hide it from the goats, those who have not been chosen uh, from the foundation of the world for redemption. And just as the word of God cannot fail to achieve the purpose for which it was given, scripture cannot fail to teach the truth of God's word. The scriptures are infallible. They were, are without error. That is, they are incapable of teaching error. And now this is really, really important. We're going to stop here for just a minute. Because the thing is, is today we are living in a time when people might say, well, I believe that the scriptures are without error. That's great. Okay? Praise God. But you very, very rarely hear very few, even among those who affirm inerrancy, you very, very rarely hear, even in books on the doctrine of Scripture, you very rarely hear about infallibility, that, that the Scripture is without the possibility of error. And you have, even among people today who affirm inerrancy, they, what they mean by inerrancy is they believe in functional inerrancy meaning it functions, the, the scriptures function uh, without error only as far as they understand them. That is not inerrancy. Inerrancy means that the Bible is without error in everything that it says. When the Bible clearly speaks, it's, it is without error. The whole Bible is clear. The whole Bible is without error. Because, as I said, Titus 1-2 very clearly states that God cannot lie. And so if the scriptures are without error, uh, then we have a problem because that means that God erred. And then God isn't holy. And so, so it's not enough even to believe in just inerrancy. We must affirm, if we're going cons- if, if, if to be true to the word, we need to affirm that the scripture are in, that 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 not only is the Bible without error, but it's without the possibility of error. And the reason is God can't lie. God is holy. He's majestic. His very promises are tied to his word. And that means it is impossible for God to err. And what this does is it actually roots our confidence in the word of God, in the very character of God, and over and over and over again. When scripture speaks like, in uh, 2 Corinthians one twenty, all the promises of God are, t- are yes and amen, Paul says, in Christ. Now, what does the scripture reveal? From Genesis to Revelation and everywhere in between, the scripture reveals Christ. So if we have only a scripture that is without error and not the possibility of error, so it might be possible that scripture could potentially err. And the problem is, is that people who even affirm well, they affirm functional inerrancy. Uh, what they do is they say, oh, I, I believe in it. But what they mean is that, that inerrancy is, is true for them only so far as they agree with what the Bible says. We, we see this happening all over evangelicalism today. 
And it's sad and it's tragic. And that's why we need to affirm not only the doctrine of inerrancy, we need to affirm the infallibility of the Word of God. And here's why, okay? Just as the Word of God cannot fail to achieve the purpose for which it's been given, Scripture cannot fail to teach us the truth of God's Word. The Scriptures are infallible. That is, incapable of teaching error. This is a necessary consequence of divine inspiration and the omnipotence of God. Scripture is God-breathed, and since God is truth himself, Jesus, who is God incarnate, identifies himself as the truth. In John 14, 6, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. He is incapable of telling any lie. Proverbs 30, verse 5 says, Every word of God proves true. So the power of God guarantees the infallibility of the inscripturated word. Some, some people want to argue that it's impossible for Scripture to contain errors because it was written by human beings. And human beings are capable of erring. However, being capable of error and actually making an error are two totally different things. Mark 10.27 says, All things are possible with God. And surely God can inspire His people to write in such a way that their words cannot teach error. You see, we affirm... Following the history of the church, the human origin of Scripture, it was written by human beings and it bears the mark of human authorship. And we also affirm the divine origin of Scripture, that God superintended the authors of the biblical text in such a way that the final product cannot teach falsehood. And if we believe otherwise, then we've denied the omnipotence of God and have no reason to trust that he can save us. And yet we can be sure of the, the scriptural promises and the truth. And we can be sure of the hope we have in eternity because of our infallible God and his infallible word. In the hope of eternal life, which God cannot lie, he promised before the world began. So we need to understand what infallibility is and what it means for us. God cannot lie. Our hope is secure in a glorious eternity with the creator because God has promised it. God cannot lie. It is not even that God won't lie or, or that he doesn't want to lie. It's that he cannot lie. This is the same God who gave us his word, the scriptures. God's revelation is no lie since God cannot lie. In Jeremiah 32, uh, 27, God's word makes it clear that he is all-powerful. He's all-knowing. Uh, Psalm 139, verse 2, he's ever-present. Revelation twenty-two thirteen. We can know that there is no power greater than God, no one more knowledgeable than God, no one who has, who has been before God or will come after. God cannot lie. God cannot be can mislead or be misled. And this is a great comfort of Scripture. This is a great hope of Scripture. We can be sure of the, pro, of the promises and the truth of the word of God. We can be sure of the hope that we have in, in eternity because of our infallible God and his infallible word. The next thing is the infallibility of scripture is a cause for a sure and a confident hope for every single Christian. When we pray, we need to thank God there is no one that is like him. In fact, biblical infallibility is a subject of crucial importance for us and for the whole church of Christ. In fact, biblical infallibility helps us so, so much. There are people who say that, in, that evangelical Christians today are Bible thumpers. They make too much of the Bible. They, they dismiss this phrase, the Bible says, even though Jesus says it is written, or don't you know that the scripture says, or something like this over and over in the Gospels. And they say the Bible says with a comment that, that anything can be proved with the scriptures. They patronize us. They speak in terms of admiration for our orthodoxy and our, and our zeal, but saying that the greatest weakness of evangelical Christians is to trust to them in an infallible Bible. They believe that, that this doctrine is utterly unacceptable in a modern age, that it's scientifically and intellectually impossible for Christians to believe it. And they think it's wrong to unite around a book or even a doctrine. They, so they say, let us unite, they say, around the Lord Jesus. He's the truth. But how do we know of the Lord Jesus, we must ask? 
Well, we're very, uh, we're very happy, of course, to unite around the person of our Lord Jesus and to make his, him our authority and to say for, with the apostle, for me to live is the Lord Jesus. In fact, it's because of him that we find ourselves uniting around an inerrant scripture. So we don't just unite around the person and work of Jesus. We unite around the person and work of Jesus because he is revealed in the word of God. There is no other way to, for us to unite. There's no other reason for us to unite other than the Lord Jesus is revealed in the word of God. And this is why Jesus, in Luke 24, 27, he interprets to those disciples on the road to Emmaus, the Old Testament. He tells them about Moses and the law and the prophets, okay? In fact, let's talk about the person of our Lord Jesus, the most extraordinary person is the Lord Jesus. He is the one who claims that he is going to judge the world, and he is going to separate all mankind as a shepherd separates his sheep from the goats. Men are going to receive their eternal destiny from his lips. In fact, consider something more than this, that the criterion by which men and women are going to be judged is in their relationship to their creator and their Lord. Have they obeyed him? Have they bowed the knee to the person and the work of Christ? Have they been ashamed of him? Well, their destinies are going to depend upon that. More than that, he claims pre-existence. He, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. And more, he claims absolute authority with God. I and my Father are one. John 1, 1 through 2 clearly states, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And it ends with Thomas saying in John 20, 23, My Lord and my God. And this then is the Jesus Christ of the Bible. He, he, he is the maker of heaven and earth. He designed the human brain. He upholds all things by the word of his power. If the sparrow is going to fall, when, when is going to fall then, then Jesus Christ must give the word of command. If a meteor will burn up in, in earth's atmosphere, the Lord decreed the occurrence. Nothing can happen without the Lord. All the laws of the universe are the Lord's. And when our children bring home the te- our textbooks from the, the new school with, with the, the, the foreboding heavy volumes of mathematics and physics, physics, those books are simply the attempt of men to describe the world that Christ made and sustains. And one day he will come again in power and majesty and great glory to take this universe atom by atom. He will put it all together again. A, no, a whole new universe in which righteousness will dwell. And we shall meet him, and we shall receive from his lips the destination where we will spend eternity. Everyone, in fact, must stand before the Lord. We will meet him. We will receive from his lips the destination where we will spend eternity. And when we see him, we will meet ultimate and final reality. He is the only God that there is. He he is the whole form of God and the very glory of God. In Jesus Christ, all the treasures of wisdom and the knowledge are found infinitely and immeasurably. We do confess the infallibility of Jesus Christ. That means that he can say nothing wrong. He speaks on marriage and on divorce. He speaks on creation, both primary of the things from nothing, and then secondarily of those creatures he has made of the dust of the earth, the animals and man. He speaks on the human predicament and explains why people kill other people. He knows the heart of man and and none other and all of its devices. He speaks on death. He knows the eternal world. The Lord Jesus pronounces inerrantly on every single item that you and I will meet in this life. He alone was free from all all the prejudices, the misconceptions, the traditions that that cluttered his age. Remember, in the Sermon on the Mount, at the very end, uh, the the people there that were, were hearing Jesus speak, they recognized him as speaking as one with authority. We are creatures of our time today. We he, he was not a creature of his time. Some religious people living then thought that it was wrong to eat ears of corn on the Sabbath day. Some believed it was wicked to eat food without first correctly and ceremonially washing their hands. Others thought it was right for a man to divorce his wife for, for any reason if, if she offered him that. 
There was also those who thought they might be freed from the responsibility of caring for aged persons by simply pronouncing the word Corbin, meaning my help to you is a gift from God. Now, there were those who thought it was acceptable to love their neighbors and and then to hate their enemies. Jesus was surrounded with the confusion of people who were children of their time. But, But Jesus was not a child of his time. He was God's holy child, Jesus. He corrected his generation on all such issues and many more. He stood against the tide, against his foes, even if that meant they crucified him. He would never be bought. He would never be bribed. He could never be won by a smile or intimidated by a frown. He never taught without error. This is the Son of God who says, I am the truth. And it is around this Christ that men want us to unite. And we have no objection to that at all. Now we need to ask the question, how did the infallible Christ view the scriptures? Well, it would be incredible if he were silent or merely noncommittal on such a crucial matter. We observe that he used the Old Testament scriptures in all sorts of circumstances. He took them up in temptation when, when there was a full frontal talk attack from him, from the devil. And he overcame the devil by quoting from the book of Deuteronomy three times, saying it is written. Why did he do that? He believed the Bible was verbal, verbally plenary, inspired. It was inerrant. It was infallible. That is why the Son of God and the Son of Man said, as the ultimate answer, it is written. He quoted the Bible pertinently and reverently throughout his temptations to triumph over Satan. He used scripture to answer his enemies. He appeals uh, to the Bible when, when they're arguing about divorce or about the right attitude about the Sabbath. He says to his opponents, you err not knowing the scriptures. He encouraged people in their faith through the Bible. There was a man, Cephas, and his companion who were distraught, walking on the road to Emmaus. The Lord Jesus had been murdered two days earlier, and the bottom of their lives had fallen out. Well, Jesus helped them get on with their lives and trust in God completely by opening up to them the scriptures. He began with Moses, and then he appealed to them through all the, the written prophets. He showed the two men all the details about himself in the Old Testament. And he judged them to be foolish and slow not to believe Scripture. Again, he used Scripture to express his own faith. And when he preached in Nazareth, it was that the Scriptures should be fulfilled in Luke 4. When he was betrayed by Judas, it was the Scriptures that should be fulfilled. And when they put him to death, Scripture had said that the Messiah would die. And when they hung him upon a cross, it was because that that the very Scripture, cursed is he who hangs upon a tree, should be fulfilled. And when he was dying, he quotes Psalm 31 and Psalm 22. So scripture must be fulfilled. He totally trusted the word of God. He totally obeyed the word of God. His faith is Bible faith. He never used any other book at his time. He never quoted from the Apocrypha on any occasion. His appeal was to the scripture continually and alone. And so Jesus quotes from every part of Scripture. In fact, there are 179 verses of Jesus' own teaching in which he refers to the Scripture. That's about 10% of his recorded ministry. It consists of quotations from the Old Testament. He appeals to virtually all those passages that, that men grumble about today. He refers to Genesis 2 that says, In the beginning God made them male and female. He appeals to the murder of Abel, Noah's flood. He reminds them of Lot, leaving Sodom with fire and brimstone upon following it. He says, remember Lot's wife. He refers to Moses being spoken to at the burning bush. Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness. Jonah in the whale, the men of Nineveh repenting. Nahum being cleansed from his leprosy. Elijah going to the widow of Zerah and the queen of the south coming to Solomon. He quotes five prophets directly. He quotes every part of Isaiah as Isaiah saying those words. He quotes from eight Psalms. He's familiar with the Old Testament biblical theology and the whole history of redemption. His teaching is full of Scripture. In fact, he teaches, Jesus teaches a doctrine of Scripture. He calls the Scriptures the commandments of God. He refers to them as the Word of God. And when he repeats a word from a Psalm, he says, 
in Matthew 22, 41 through 45, David himself said in the Holy Spirit. That's a very interesting doctrine of Scripture. There came a time when the spirit of revelation came upon David, and then he wrote the 23rd Psalm or other Psalms. Jesus said that the Bible is going to endure. He compares the scriptures with the earth we stand on, and he also compares them with the stars of the heaven, saying it is simply uh, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than one uh, tittle of the law should fail in Matthew 5, 17 through 20. For the Lord Jesus' scripture is inviolable. They cannot be broken, John 10, 35. Uh, the scriptures clearly tell us, Verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or tittle uh, shall in any wise pass from the law till it be fulfilled. He says that the scripture are true. John 17, 17, thy word is truth. He appeals to the way scripture is phrased in John 10, 34 through 35. Jesus answered, it is not written in the law. I said, ye are gods. If you call them gods, unto whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken. Again, he says in Matthew 22, 31-32, But as touching the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that which spo was spoken unto you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. This is the doctrine of scripture that Jesus himself taught. He taught that the, the doctrine of the nature of God. He, he, he taught the doctrine of redemption. He taught the doctrine of the eternal state. This is what he taught about the Bible. And now, if the word of God is full of mistakes, should he not have warned us? Would he not have told us? Would he, he would have warned his disciples about the leaving of the Pharisees. Was there not even one occasion when he said in John 14, verse 2, if it were not so, I would not have told you. And so we have, we have seen, firstly, who Jesus Christ is, God incarnate, the infallible Lord, who used the truth. And secondly, he taught the doctrine of the truth of Scripture. He binds all the consciences of those who love and serve him with this same attitude, because he is the Lord. And if the disciple is not greater than his master, then we are committed to believe in an infallible Bible, the issue is not an intellectual one, it's a moral one. Will we obey our God who has revealed himself in the word of God? Well, the Lord Jesus also gave his word to the apostles. Paul was very conscious that the Christian message was not an original message made up by him. He was aware of the secondary nature of his understanding and that this was a derived message. He received it. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1 says, I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I received, he said. And when he's summarizing the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, 1, he says this, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached to you, which ye have received, and which you stand. Verse 3, and, and again, for I delivered unto you all that I have received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and rose again on the third day. And when, when he spoke to the Galatians and Galatians 1, 11 through 12, he said, I certify, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. For if I, I neither received it of man, nor was I taught of it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so Paul and the apostles are conscious that they're simply passing on something, an unoriginal message that they are mere delivery boys of or heralds. They're just instruments of. They're declaring a message they have received from somebody far greater than themselves to whom they must answer for the stewardship of their message. It was from the Lord Jesus that Paul got his doctrine of Scripture. There is this great New Testament teaching about the lordship of Christ, his incarnation and redemption. It speaks about the meaning of his suffering, his resurrection from the grave. Paul, Paul says, I am handing it down in my preaching, in my letters. It did not originate in the apostle. He received it. But he did not get it from any man, even from the apostles. He got it directly from the Lord Jesus. Like the prophets who were called into the presence of Jehovah, and they came from there with a word burning like fire in their bones. So Paul went to Jehovah Jesus and came from him with a specific giving good news, glad tidings. 
for all men. He had spent those years in the wilderness of Arabia, just as John the Baptist received his commission in preparation during the years of sojourn in the wilderness, coming out to awaken the nation. So Paul spent time in the presence of Christ, and the same Lord who had spoken to him on the road to Damascus proceeded to clarify to the apostle eternal truth. It was from the Lord Jesus that Paul got his doctrine of revelation. There is not a hair's breadth of difference between the apostles' attitude towards the word of God and the Lord's evaluation of it. In fact, Paul's words in 2 Timothy 3.16 are this, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. The Apostle Peter says this in 2 Peter 1.21, Prophecy came not in old time by the will of men, but holy men spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. That attitude to the Hebrew Scriptures they learned from the example and the teaching of none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. So the authors of the New Testament had the very same approach to Scripture as our Lord did. The Apostles quote every part of the Old Testament. The only book from the Old Testament that's not quoted directly in the New Testament is the book of Esther. In the letter to Hebrews where David or Isaiah are being appealed to, you'll find the author to the Hebrews prefacing his quotation marks, God said or the Holy Spirit says. Note the present tense as it refers to a living reality. Paul in Acts 24, 14, he confessed that he believed in everything that was written in the law and the prophets. In other words, if it was found in the Bible, Paul believed it. This is how God taught him to respond to Scripture. And, and then we also learned that the Apostle Peter, the writings of his brother Paul, are laid on exactly the same level as other Scripture that is of the Old Testament in 2 Peter 3, 16. And so all Scripture is, is to be believed because it's God-breathed, that is, of the inspiration of God. That is the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ and his apostles. If you could have inquired asking the Savior and Lord how comprehensive is this inspiration, he would give you the answer that he gave in the Sermon on the Mount, not a jot or a tittle of the law shall pass away until all is fulfilled. What do we mean by inspiration is that God came in the exercise of a very special providence, and supervise the writing of the whole scriptures. The Bible is the word from God. It is not simply that God showed men something and then let them write it down as they were pleased. He did not let them feel something numious and inspirational, and then they composed it in their own words. The inspiration of scripture is related directly to its writing. Well, you might protest at this, and many, many people do, but to err is human, and so we can't have human activity without sin or without error. The issue, though, is a different one. Is not Almighty God able to so superintend to control to even overrule the operations of the human mind so as to ensure that men say exactly what God wants them to say, to write precisely what God wants them to write? Is this an impossibility with God? He can make the universe and raise the dead, but he cannot then prepare a man in his providence so that the man inscribes what God wants. It's interesting in Revelation 10.4 where, where John is about to write down some words and God intervenes and he says, don't write them down. And so God assisted these men as they used their distinctive personalities, the exercise of their faculties, their minds, their memories, their emotions. God freely enabled them to use their experiences, in fact, even a number of biographical references. In all their writings, God determined that they were freely put down and recorded what transpired to be exactly what they wanted them to say. And so the word Lord worked all things after the counsel of his will. He prevented them as the foundation of the church for the next 2,000 years from laying a foundation of air. There was no destruction of their personalities. Paul remained different from John and also from Luke. It, it's, it's, it was not always dictation on God's part. There, there, though there was an immediacy, there was an intimacy in their relation with God, like a servant whose eyes are on the face of his master. The great comprehensive idea and the, the whole, the concept of divine inspiration through men is that every single scripture is God-breathed. All the parts of the Bible say exactly what God intended to say. 
The scriptures are God's infallible testimony to himself and to us about himself to the end that we might be saved. Now, there are there's a difference we need to understand between difficulties and errors. In all of science, there are difficulties. Consider two or three aspects of biblical interpretation which cause inerrantists uh, some difficulty. The Bible is insistent that the universe is God's creation. It would have no existence without him. In fact, we're told that God made everything in Christ by him were all things made. Without him was not anything that was made that was made. In Genesis 1, we are introduced to God's approach to creation. The plan was from the, from the simple to the complex and the great six acts, the first day light, the second day the skies and the sea, the third day the earth, the fourth day the sun and the moon, fifth day birds and fishes, sixth day animals and man, seventh day God rested. And some of these acts were out of or in nothing, and in others of those acts God created out of, out of already existent materials. Immediately, God intervenes and created something, and then it is not natural. It is a miraculous intervention. The sum of factors that have been so far made are not sufficient to explain the changes. God said, let there be light, and immediately there is light. Not a pinprick, but a universal curtain stretched out from one end of the universe to the other. And we might argue that light travels uh, so many million miles in a year, and the time uh, the light from a distant star reaches us indicates, with other factors, that the universe should be 300 million years old. And that doesn't even take into consideration the creative power of God. In fact, the intrusion of God might mean that light was made in a moment. Now, I'm not saying that the, the earth is 300 million years early, or old either. When God made Adam and then Eve, they would probably have looked like they're in their early 20s, but they received light in a moment. Adam was made out of the dust of the earth, and Eve was made out of a rib in Adam's side. God breathed into Adam's nostril the breath of life, and it was because of that that he became a living being. The, the making of our first parents is totally because of a supernatural action. Consider the light cast from this mighty works of the risen Lord Jesus. In his very first miracle, what does Jesus do in John 2? He turns water into wine. And the man who tasted it judged that it was the, the fine old wine. And we know, in fact, that it was only minutes old. In, in the world, rain falls upon the soil of a, of a vineyard. It's absorbed through the roots of the vine and by osmosis taken up to every part of the plant. Flowers are pollinated. Fruit appears and ripens as the sun beats down. Finally, the grapes are picked, they're crushed, they're purified, they're aged at the climax of actual winemaking process. The Lord short-circuited that in a moment of creative supernaturalism. Again, Christ multiplies the loaves and fishes to a superabundance. It is bread he makes, not grain, nor flour, nor dough. And when he multiplies the fish, it is not fry he makes, but mature fish, a year or two old and cooked. Who are we dealing with? It's Jehovah, the Lord Jesus, the God of Genesis 1. In fact, that chapter is doxological, of course, but we are, we are turned to praise only because it's true. God created the universe. He made our first parents. He, he placed them in a state of probation, and then they turned against him, and sin entered the world and the inevitable companion of death. And when God made man, there was no death. It was a perfect world, and sin was death's trigger. It was that historical fall that plunged Adam and all of us into sin. It brought death to mankind. Lord Jesus and his apostles throughout the New Testament teach this, and so much the Christian faith in its mighty confessions for 20 centuries. Uh, creation, fall, and redemption are the structures on which Christian religion is erected. Now, there's another difficulty. The Old Testament teaches very simply an eye for an eye, uh, just an eye. It forbids revenge. That would take a life when one has caused a loss of a man's eye. A, a tooth for a tooth, not a life for a tooth. The civil punishment must justly fit the crime. That is the basis of universal justice. Well, that passage is not addressing personal relationships. It's addressing civic justice. Another problem is caused by the depravity of local cultures. They were so evil that divine judgment fell upon them and they were devoted to God. It was an anticipation of the great day of judgment. There was a flood in Noah's time. 
This man of God, he lived for long years in the midst of an irredeemable civilization. He preached the word of God into the teeth of their disdain. And finally, a unique and unrepeatable judgment fell upon them from heaven above and earth beneath. There was a cascade and an eruption of waters together, so flooding that the earth, that, that the world has changed beyond recognition from that one in which uh, lived Noah and his little ugly Canaanite civilization. And then there started a new beginning to mankind in a new world. Joshua's army faced a Canaanite culture uh, in its wickedness and power and its corruption. God, as it were, took his black cap and pronounced a sentence of death upon it. He was the, his executioner was Joshua and his hosts. And when Israel falls into the same sin, the same judgment of death comes upon them and their bones are scattered in the wilderness. And so the genocide was not motivated by racial hatred. The devoting of the people of God was a demonstration of the divine rectitude and justice. That They remind us that we're living in a moral universe. Man sows that which he reaps. They are the types and the models of judicial activity that are in the scripture, not to galvanize the church today, to take up the sword. In fact, the weapons of our warfare are exclusively spiritual. They're mighty through God. In fact, the few racial judgments in the Old Testament, they rather point forward to the day of judgment. They're eschatological. They have an end times focus in their purpose. Now, consider that in, in, in that light, some of the sentiments expressed in the Psalms, such as Psalm 58, 6 through 10, Psalm 59, 12 through 13, Psalm 69, 24 through 28, or even Psalm 137, 8 through 9, which says, O daughter of Babylon, doomed to destroy, happy is he who repays you for what you have done to us, he who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. These are imprecatory psalms. Some critics have judged that these sentiments cannot be reconciled with the New Testament God of love. Now, we need to understand, though, that they, they can. They can because they're not conflicting. Jesus tells us to love our enemies. And who is the personification of love? Where, where does love, the love and the holiness of God meet but in the cross of the Lord, of the Lord Jesus? See, those prayers in the book of Psalms are expressions of, of the Old Testament believers who are surrounded by their enemies. These men were the bulls of Bashan, pawing the ground in their anger, wanting go to gore God's people to death. The church is set forth, says Christ, like sheep amid wolves who want to tear them in pieces and devour them. They blaspheme the name of their God and want to wholly exterminate his name, his word, his people from the face of the earth. These Old Testament believers are pronouncing their long longing for vindication and judgment in the name of Jehovah, the righteous God. And in vivid poetic language, these, they are crying, let God arise, let his enemies be scattered. And so there are difficulties, but that does not mean that there are errors in what is expressed. But there's one other difficulty, and that is your own difficulty. And, and we, I don't know what that is, but you do. But we, we could observe that every Christian having one particular passage in the Bible, and, and we, it gets under our skin. The floating axhead, the conflicting numbers in Chronicles and Kings, the universal flood, the talking donkey, Christ walking on the water, the smiting of the fig tree, the mini resurrection when Christ was hanging on the cross. And they, they really, we really worry about these kind of verses. It seems that the devil who observes them appropriately gets at them. He sows doubt in their minds. Can God have really said that, we might ask. And remember the first temptation man met when, when Satan came to him and said, Has God said? Those were the words spoken to our first parents. It would have seemed incredible if that approach of Satan's casting doubt on the word of God, which had proved so effective for him then, was no longer used by him today. It would, it would seem that God is telling us that we can reckon it on, on it, that, that Satan will do his best to undermine our faith in particular passages of the word of God. And we are to watch and to pray as Jesus told the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. We acknowledge that there are some problem verses, although there are not that many of them. 
They've been around for hundreds of years. Augustine wrote about some of them 16 centuries ago. Christians have been considering them during the millennia, answering their objections to them, from cynics, despisers of the gospel, right up to the liberal critics of our day. There is nothing new under the sun, as Solomon says in Ecclesiastes. Now, there's a book uh, that, that's always, it's an old book. It's always in print. It's John W. Haley's Alleged Discrepancies of the Bible. It's very helpful. It's very sure in its judgment. Buy a commentary to help you understand the scriptures, to consult it. Talk to another Christian or to your pastor. That's what they're there for. There are difficulties, but most difficulties are greatly exaggerated. The word infallible seems to raise the hackles of people. And yet all the books in the Bible that we have are free from error. The manuals that come with machines we have bought and and that are wholly true. And if there's a mistake in them, which is possible, the manufacturer will correct those errors in the next edition. These are human books which are wholly true, but how much more is the Bible, which every generation is summoned to take, to read, to understand, to learn, to live out, to proclaim, and to charge to the consciences of its children? Believe that this is the word of God. We need to talk about something, though, that is the elephant in the room, and that is our coldness to the Scripture. And we need to be honest that, that the great difficulty, the greatest difficulty of all, is not the Word of God itself, it's our coldness to it. We read the opening psalm in the book of Psalms, and we meet there the blessed man. We, we discover that his delight is in the law of the Lord, and, and in that law, he meditates on it day and night. By the way, the word, the word meditate there, it means, to, it means to talk to yourself, okay? It means to talk to yourself. It means to grumble. It means to talk to yourself about the Bible. That's what it means to meditate. And so here, here's a man who really loves the Bible. And now, now that he is searching at the test of the Christianity for any man, not only that we have the correct revealed doctrine of Scripture and that we read it diligently every day, that we sit under the best preaching that we can hear each Sunday, verse-by-verse verse preaching, but more than all those things, that we actually come to love it, that we have fallen in love with the Scriptures. Now, is that our relationship to Scripture? Is it not true that, that sometimes our preferences for other literature, that the delight has shifted from the divine oracles to some devotional book or even to a biography? And one of the intriguing things is that some people is what some people do for relaxation. And now when a person relaxes, he does something that they love doing. Do you? I, I study the Bible because I have to, because it's good, is it's food for my faith, it's part of my daily discipline, but do I relax? Do I do something else? And then there's the whole element of delight has passed and we, we've ceased turning to God's word for pleasure. We want, when we want delight, we go to something else. But do we go to God's word for duty, for discipline, and for information? And before we know where we are, we have ceased to delight in the law of the Lord. We, we increasingly make some distinction between our religion and our affections. There are, there are people who, who would never think of coming uh, to a Christian concert or a Christian concert or even a Christian conference for a holiday who would never consider the prayer meeting as a night out. We have lost this commitment to the delight of the word of God, the joy of our devotion. But the blessed man in Psalm 1, he's described for us at the beginning of the book of Psalms as delighting in the law of the Lord. His pleasure is religion. There is no dichotomy between his faith and his enjoyment. His chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is his preferred occupation. And when he has the time, you'll find him reading the Bible, studying the Bible, meditating on the Bible, memorizing the Bible. He's reflecting on the law of God. He loves the word of God. And sometimes when he finishes reading it, he'll hug it to his chest as his greatest treasure, his greatest delight. God's infallible word can take his breath away. He's intrigued by it day after day, never growing weary of it, but increasingly st struck by the evidence of its inspiration, the marvelous accuracy of every word, the complexity of so many of its statements, its stirring concepts, even its remarkable use of its presupposition. He is moved by the details of its language. He's taken up with the word of God. Here's a man loving the Bible. He is enthused by scripture. 
It's a miraculous book that, that we may yet handle in way. It's, it's one of those tangible proof that God exists, that God is God. It is the great evidence for the reality of God. In fact, the whole Bible, it begins with the presupposition that God exists and then God made. We see that in Genesis 1. We worship the God who inspired this book. And so the, the Christian is in love to be, is to be in love with the word of God. Let the infallibility of Christ drive us to that confession as we submit to him as our Lord and God. But then we ourselves will echo his words that scripture is true, your word is truth, John 17, 17. But let's not stop there. Not only does every member of every cult believe that, the very devils believe that the Bible is the word of God. Demons are very orthodox. There are no modernist demons. They confess that it is the inerrant and infallible word of God. But what I'm saying is that we must go on. We must love. We must delight in the word of God. You see, devils, demons, Satan himself does not delight in the word of God. But let all of God's people summon or summon to love the word of God and more. Because they meet him, they have met in the pages of scripture. You see, this is how we know the Lord. This is how we know who we are, made in the image and likeness of God. There is no other way to know it other than in the word of God. And there is so much more, friends, that we can say, and we will definitely be talking about the infallibility of scripture and and what it means and its consequences for our lives and the application of it to our, into our lives as we move forward. But here, here is why it's important. We believe that the scriptures are without error and without the possibility of error because this is the teaching of the word of God. It is tied, and the teaching of the word of God is tied to the very character of God. That is, behind the Bible is the God who never lies. He's holy, he's just, he's merciful, he, he's, he's good, he's loving. And yet he's also holy and just and full of wrath and mercy. And, and this God reveals his son, the Lord Jesus, and so much more in the pages of the word. Well, friends, I want to thank you for listening or even watching this episode of the Equipping You in Grace podcast. Until next Monday and Friday, may God bless you and keep you. Thank you for listening to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate us on the app, and share this with your friends and family on social media. If you want to find us on social media, you can find us on Twitter at Servants of Grace, on Instagram at Servants of Grace, or by searching at Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this episode and many others like it on the front page of our website, servantsofgrace.org.